Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here, and I'm excited to bring on our guests, Matt Boulay and Jeff Moyer. Matt Boulay is an osteopath and a posturologist. He's educated in functional neurology, muscle activation techniques, and he's the founder of the IP Institute. Jeff Moyer has been a multi-time guest on this show. I've also had the good fortune of being able to travel to Pittsburgh. So once I moved to Ohio, I was able to make a little trip to Pittsburgh and meet Jeff at his gym. It was an awesome experience. Uh, Jeff has a wide-ranging expertise, including Soviet training systems, motor learning and skill acquisition, as well as the visual uh, and neurological components that feed into athleticism and good athletic movement. There are a number of lenses that we can use to assess uh, and train human performance. We have the muscular end of things, we have the connective tissue, tendons in the fascial end, we have biomechanics and motor learning, and we also have the neurological lens. And we have a lot of things that can give us a lot of information about why an athlete moves in the way that they do. And so this is what uh, Jeff and Matt will be unpacking today. They'll be talking about the pyramid of learning and the order of things that they look at on the level of neurological pieces of the human movement equation, and then with some training implications. So it was great talking to these guys. We will hit the ground running with the episode. And if you want to learn more and see some videos related to some of the material, especially towards the end of the episode, what we'll be talking about, you can check out the show notes on justflysports.com. All right, let's get to episode 383 here with Matt Boulay and Jeff Moyer. I do want to really center a lot around what Jeff said, is those sensory gateways, the vision, the soles of the feet. I think so many of us get clients, individuals, athletes in. I know for me, a lot of times, and, and my knowledge of what you guys are going to be getting into is is very base level. All I notice is I'm just like, I know something is not right here, like vestibularly, vision-wise. I don't know how to test it. I just know something is off and it doesn't go into any of my other testing buckets. <laughs> and I think that the main thing I do have is the soles and the skins of the feet. I do a lot of stuff there, but that's, you know, that's the one piece. And so, maybe tell me a little bit more about the pyramid of learning, like from an inside-out perspective, what are these main pieces neurologically that set an, an individual up to be a good mover, adaptable, to be able to move without restriction uh, in their environment? I'll let Jeff answer that one. He's more than more oh, than okay. He's ready. To, he's been ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> it's all good. Well, um, the pyramid of learning came from uh, Williams and Schnellenberg, who were educational psychiatrists. Matt, is that Educa correct? Yeah, educational therapists. Yeah, therapists. Sorry, and. Um, they mapped out the blueprints, uh, uh, essentially, of how the brain and the nervous system is developed from birth to one or two years old or to, to, to high-level academics. And so the pyramid of learning, um, I don't have a picture with me right now, but it is kind of, uh, again, we all, whether it's you or Matt or me, our brain develops in similar patterns and similar ways from, from birth, from childhood. And the the Pyramid does an excellent job of showing the stages, and um, I couldn't help but think while you guys are talking about handiness and AIS and, uh, and, and all the postural stuff of, well, one, one of the things at the very base of the pyramid is, well, depending on which pyramid you look at, it's a central nervous system, or some people will put the pyramid of reflexes there, and I couldn't help but think, 
decidedness and all this stuff in how you you couldn't find necessarily correlations with with the with the legs and stuff well also to me from what i've seen is is how the child is developed how did they crawl how did they what reflexes do they did they you know do they still possibly have so matt can get into it a little bit better but you you'll you'll find athletes that are really tight left glutes right really tight left glute it's it's always their left even though they're right-handed right-footed regardless of what sport the left glute is really tight well if you happen to have i mean we're at that age now where our parent uh, parents have videos of kids crawling not so much when we were kids you know what i mean get the big ass vhs recorder up but um you can see now uh when you watch those old videos and, and joel i'm sure you can looking back at your kids of how they crawled i have this one girl for instance, she's 17 years old, a track athlete, senior in high school. She's been on Ritalin since 14. She has really bad reading issues, and she's, she, uh, she said she never crawled. And mm-hmm. so she sent me a video of what she did. I, I don't know if I, I think I sent it to you guys of her just mm-hmm. doing this butt scoot. Oh, yeah, and she yeah. did a butt bump, scoot. Bump and something. her leg kind of, <laughs> Yeah, she did this weird butt scoot. And like no one said it was wrong. You know, it's it's not anyone's fault that she was doing this, but like, that's not correct. <laughs> that you know, that creeping pattern is not correct, and you know, she's got some sidedness now due to that. And you can see that in 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 kids if you watch them how they crawl and stuff. Whether it's one leg works better than the other, because that's where tone is first set and developed uh, is from childhood and through those reflexes. And so for me, I start. If I see patterns, so for instance, I, uh, I give you another quick case study, and then Matt can give you a better explanation. A uh, college football player came in. We're going through his history of injuries, all left-sided injuries. Um, he has limited range of motion in his hips for external internal rotation, but his mom said he was a W sitter when he uh, was a kid, and he was a toe walker. Well, right there, boom! That in my head says he has a TLR, a tonic uh, uh, lateral reflex when he was a kid. Oh shit! There goes my picture behind my head and uh right there i knew he had primitive reflexes that was probably still retained um and so i'm not going to get those things to move until we start addressing the underlying issue which was the primitive reflex and that's where we start at the base of the pyramid and then matt you know um matt can go through more of connecting the dots but for me that pyramid has just been so helpful to like okay you know, Joe, we've done, I believe, a podcast on vision training, sports vision training. And, you know, I, I still attest and use and love slow the game down and, and what they've taught me and what the date, late Dr. Bill Hartman taught me. But I wasn't batting a thousand. I couldn't mm-hmm. fix all these visual issues that I was I was seeing. Some kids, you know, uh, I was just told that just couldn't get stereostopsis. They couldn't get binocularity, you know. And then once I started learning what Matt was teaching and IP and started learning the pyramid, then I started addressing those things and then boom, all this vision training started getting so much better um, without necessarily even directly doing vision training. Um, and so for me, it's been the pyramid is the answer to a lot of uh, issues that we see with kids with who are labeled with learning things or kids mm-hmm. who have, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, and I apologize, motor morons uh, um, that we work with that just can't figure out where their, their ass or their elbow is. Um, for me, this pyramid has been been a great guide uh, for that, and Matt's been my, my teacher for that. And, and the pyramid comes from the U.S., so there you go. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's true. I was um, I was asked to do a symposium about ten years ago about the the work that I did, and I, I I was on Google trying to figure out like what kind of a visual could I present to the crowd 
it was all strength coaches. It was in Montreal. There was about a hundred of them. And this was all, this is still very new to a lot of people, but 10 years ago, presenting this in Montreal, this was completely new. Like no one had an idea. Um, again, mostly developed in Europe and, um, but that's it. So, and then I came across this learning pyramid from Williams and Schellenberger. And I thought, okay, these two ergo therapists aren't even involved in sports performance because they're involved in learning uh, and academic issues. But my gosh, it's the same brain. And if, if you're able to, um, each stage of the pyramid has some competencies that you uh, literally have to learn and you build on these competencies from simple to more complex, from isolated to more integrated. And as you do that, you uh, integrate the primitive reflexes that Jeff was speaking about. You integrate them in the order that you need to integrate them, because in medicine, that's it's quite known that uh, for us to be able to move the way we want, we have to integrate these primitive reflexes. Uh, and yeah, so that's that's the work that we do. And when we do that, we give people more access to recruiting muscles. And that recruitment, the access to the tissues is actually what then allows you to develop any quality, whether it's, you know, power, strength, endurance, flexibility, hypertrophy. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty much that simple. It's just understanding how we develop and making sure that we have um, access to our 600 muscles with the one brain that we have. Most people don't. And most people have a brain. They don't have access to all 600 muscles. Hmm. Um, you know, so speaking of the pyramid, I, I really want to approach this from, you know, if we look at like most pyramids have a layer of depth to them, like the, the entry to the, the pyramid is very simple. Everyone can understand it. And then as you go up, you have to, you kind of, you have to have and experience the layers before it. So I think, uh, and even for my own sake here, I definitely want to kind of work with more of the, the entry level stuff. Um, but one thing I really, and Jeff, you had said it, I think this is something that my brain instantly goes to, uh, is there's athletes, athletes who just aren't coordinated. Are they just, and are they just not, here's my fingers, air quotes, not coordinated. They're just not a good mover. And I will say there are some athletes who are just exceptionally skilled, like end of story, I believe, like who just have it in their, it's almost like in the line of genes to, you know, like the Pele, the Michael Jordan, like they're just skilled movers. But how do you differentiate between maybe just not being that good at sports in general? Maybe, you know, maybe chess or music is more thing, right? Like, that's probably connected too. please tell me how. But um, how how do you what are some red flags that there are like reflexes, vision, vestibular issues that are holding someone back from their movement ability? Like someone is uncoordinated. You ask them to skip or do basic skips or movement in the gym and they are just they're just not good at it. What are some tripwires to say, okay, there is something neurological going on here that we actually can do something about. They're not just, well, that kid's just a motor moron, you know, or whatever you said, whatever your term is. Hopefully it's a little bit nicer than that. Um, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. I'm just curious with some basics because I think a lot of coaches would be in that position because we get a lot of kids who have different levels of discoordination and in different ways. And so what are some ways we can go about looking into that? Um, well, I'll tell you what I look for, and then you know, Matt can get into it with, with the high-level athletes he works with. But like, and I, and I, and it's not just athletes, you know, because I work with adults too. But I see, but athletes mm -hmm. that are people that struggle mirroring what I'm trying to do. So if they're standing across from me and I hold up my right hand, they hold up their left hand, mm -hmm. right? They struggle with the right and left there. Um, people that just generally struggle knowing they're right from the left. I, I can't tell you the amount. Uh, I would definitely say it's probably over 20% of my athletes that don't know the right from their left. Um, 
just just that um so mm-hmm. so you know not knowing right from off uh mirroring what i do uh taking instruction um athletes that kind of just like have this blank stare when, when you're talking and you have to uh again i understand there's different ways to learn there's visual mm-hmm. auditory this and that but um the athletes that uh, that really need their hands on and you need to do it for them. And then not only that, you have to do it for them multiple times. They can't remember what they did yesterday. They can't remember what they did an hour ago. You know, it's those, those, those athletes that come in and just, it's almost like a a new session every day, but you've been doing the same things. Um, uh, you know, athletes that, um, when you're cueing them, they don't, again, they don't, they don't seem to know where they are. Right. So Matt can get into what break the breakdown of coordination. Right. So we, we, we use that phrase motor moron, but I, you know, again, for lack of a better phrase, but you know, there's, 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 uh, elements of what goes into coordination, proprioception being one of them, but there's conscious and unconscious proprioception that we can get into. And so, um, do they even know where their body is in space? Yeah. I know my foot's on the ground, but can I feel it? You know, can you show me that you can feel your foot. Um, and that, that goes for coordination, but that also goes for athletes that have chronic injuries, um, constantly rolling, their, rolling their ankle. I'm willing to bet they're losing sensitivity of their foot. And that's, that's also something playing into it. And I've tested that, um, both with what I've learned from Matt and the two point discrimination test, you know, I'll touch their toes and they have no idea what toes I touched. They couldn't, they couldn't tell you what toes I touched. Um, and they laugh about it because it's almost silly that they should know what toes I touched. Um, and, and athletes that come with one-sidedness is a sign of something to me, you know, all, all left, left shoulders, always tight, left, left hips, always tight. My left ankles always messed up. Uh, one-sidedness, um, is something that I just had a, another one, man, I got, I got a whole bunch. I'm going to do an article on it for you, Joel. I promise. I already ran it through Matt, but, um, yeah, that's just some of what I got, Matt. What else you got, buddy? Dude, that was like. The so I guess the the conclusion to what uh, all the different points that Jeff brought up is that in every one of those cases, um, if the individual has a hard time perceiving their right and their left, they're obviously going to have a hard time protecting themselves in the environment. So mm-hmm. for sports, that's huge. Um, and if you have a difficulty feeling one foot versus the other, that's actually going to be correlated with an imbalance in posture. So typically, typically the side that we don't connect with as well is the side where we have a tilt. So you assess someone in posture, you put your hands on their pelvis, and if the right side of the pelvis is lower, I'm I'm a bit of a gambler. I'm willing to bet a decent amount that that would be the side where they have less sensitivity. That's the side they're going to feel like they don't have as much control over. If they use both legs in the same role, they're going to find like that's the leg that gives out before the other one. Running's a good example. Um, they're going to be shifting to the opposite leg if they squat and if they deadlift, whether it's heavy or light. Um, so yeah, so th- there's interesting correlations to make there that are I, the significant correlations, I'm going to say, to be safe between these imbalances in posture and the imbalances in movement. And Chef gave very good examples of, of all that. I just remembered a couple others. Okay, sorry. So the one Matt always <laughs> talked about in the IP courses, the athletes, when they bench press, they always look at one hand. Right. They're always looking and they don't know why they're doing it. You know, they're, they're going down. And then for some reason, their head just always goes to the right. Um, another one is the athletes for me. And I know um, the, the phrase I learned from Chris Corfus a while ago with RPR and stuff, the neck drivers, 
right? To me, I, I have not tested thousands of athletes, but the athletes that are neck drivers, when they bench press or they, they struggle putting their head down on the floor, they're just the ones that are always doing this are the ones that have reflexes um, pertaining to the head with the asymmetric platonic neck reflex, the STNR, the, the TLR um, reflexes, and then eye contact. The athletes that yeah. can't make contact, contact with me. I mean, one of the first things I, I've taught, whether it was through Matt or through Melilo, is if they struggle making eye contact, they can't look at you, then there's something right away um, going on. Yeah. Maybe um, just to kind of pare this down to like, I, I think it's, you know, when we, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different possibilities, um, a lot of different types of athletes and things. I'd love to actually, maybe we can start a little bit with the eye contact piece, just because I'm sure that's something that it's not just in the physical training session. It's probably something they do in social settings in school. There's probably a lot of interrelationships there. So um, if, and you, I'm sure psychologically too, there's psychological reasons mm. why someone might, might not want to make eye contact, but I think that's a big thing in the coaching space. That's very important, no matter who you are, sport coach, strength coach, you know, therapist. Um, tell me a little bit more about that as it pertains to, um, the neurological state and then, um, things that if you can do anything about it in the scope of whatever practice you're working with, how you could look at that. Um, there's an order in in which we develop um, the capacity we have to put our eyes on something or someone. What comes very naturally, what comes first is peripheral vision. So in infancy, a child is going to be uh, become competent at looking to the right and to the left much, much, much before they become decent at looking directly in front of them. And so if you look mm-hmm. at the maturation of the system, then uh, as Jeff points out, if a kid who's not a kid anymore, but maybe a teenager or even like maybe they're six, seven years old. And if they have a hard time looking at you when you're close to them, um, it's because that's from an evolutionary standpoint, that's actually quite recent. Um, If you look at humans versus uh, species that came before us, the very fact that our eyes are in front of our head, we take that for granted because it's been like that for 7 million years. But we've evolved from species in the water. And if you look at just your common fish, I mean, they basically have eyes on the size of their head. So you know, we really are the resultant of uh, bacteria that was there for a billion years ago. And I think when we keep that in mind, it's easier to understand why we're able to do certain things and why we wouldn't be so good at others. So the first thing that gives out when we're more fatigued or if we have more stress or if if we just don't have um, all the competencies we're supposed to have that we acquire in infancy we'll lose the capacity of looking at an object that's coming straight to our face and the closer it gets to us the harder it is to focus on it think about the repercussions in sports performance right there that's just huge because if your eyes don't coordinate well it's even harder to think that you'll have good eye hand coordination and it's even harder to think you'll have good eye foot coordination so i mean so for us that's you know obviously at the core of the work that we do it's it's our bias but it's a bias based on just pure logic of the requirements that a human needs to have. So yes, in terms of socialization, as Jeff brought up, and I, I really like the point that he makes because he's the first of my students who's ever mentioned that. And interestingly enough, we see it all the time. It's just not something I had ever paid attention to, but the capacity to uh, look at someone in the eyes when they are close to you uh, is definitely very evolved um, neurologically, and it's not the easiest thing to do. 
I'd also go on the other side of that coin and going back to the primitive reflexes, it could also mean that they have a moral reflex or a fear paralysis reflex. And so you don't want to look at the thing that's, that's mm-hmm. there that scares you. And so if we have these, these two particular reflexes, which, which from my understanding are two of the earliest ones developed in utero, um, we have sympathetic nervous system that, that immediately kicks on and we're in fight or flight. Um, so if we have this chronic moral reflex on, you know, their drink, you know, you, you know, everything that goes with heightened sympathetic activity, uh, you know, adrenals, fatigue, more, more things like that, um, start to burn out and, and they can fatigue faster and things like that. Gotcha. So, I mean, with the eye contact as well, I mean, I, I did mention it and you mentioned with the fear, uh, reflex, but I mean, how do you, um, I, I think in a lot of situations, it's also something that is, um, it's conditioned or it, it maybe it's come from a psychological um, piece. Like what, there's got to be psychological reasons that people aren't attuned to eye contact as well. I mean, or or maybe these are interrelated. Um, I know for me, for just personal experience, I used to look, I started looking down a lot early after, I don't know, maybe I was like four, five, six years old, um, just not looking people in the eye anymore. And I think part of that was just, I wasn't like bullied hardcore, but I think, you know, kids poke fun at me. I had a hard time just fitting in. I think that there was just pieces socially that caused me not to um, um, uh, maintain eye contact. I do think for me it was more social. Of course, I'd be interested to be assessed on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just curious, like like neurological, how do you know something is neurological versus something that might just be conditioned? Like, you know, coach says, hey, you know, like eye contact before we start, you know, it, this is conditioned or um, just I think that a lot of things are multifaceted. I would just be curious on your thoughts with that. So we know that the emotional system, uh, how we feel, has a direct impact on how much stiffness we have in our muscles. When we go into a stress response, we don't choose to, but we tend to close close down. Um, I call it the Mike Tyson pathway, but it's mm-hmm. really called the rubrospinal. So most people remember the Mike Tyson pathway, not so much the rubrospinal. But basically, that's that's your stress response. So you go into like a flexion mode mm-hmm. uh, for protection, and that can come purely from a stress that's emotional. Uh, but the highway does go in both directions. So if you build more resiliency in someone's uh, capacity to contract muscles, they also get better at managing a stress that comes from the emotional side of things. But but as you said, Joel, it's totally a bit of both. So I figure in the work that Jeff and, and I do, um, the only thing where I, I'll say for myself, the only thing I'm really good at is just building resiliency in in the person's system. So that I'll focus on that, and then chances are, if they come across a situation that's going to be more unpleasant, they might not react with as much stress building in their body. But it would be normal that if a tiger runs after them, that no matter how much resiliency I've built in them, they still have to figure if they're going to fight or if they're going to flight, and they'll still go into a stress response. And at that point in time, it's probably a good thing because that's going to save their life. The issue is when people's bodies and minds go into a stress response when really the situation isn't that problematic. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the bridge that we're trying to cross with the techniques that we use. But there's a threshold to everything and sometimes the threshold gets surpassed and it could come from, you know, social, environmental, uh, peer pressure could be one, as you've mentioned, a kid being bullied. I mean, no matter how good a kid's eyes move, if a kid is being bullied every day by four or five other kids, 
yeah, that's going to have to be dealt with. Like no amount of the work that we do is going to fix that, you know? So it's, it is, it is multifaceted. I totally agree. Yeah. I guess, you know, the question I would have too is like, how do you, and I have so many things I want to get to, so I can't spend too long on this, but like with things uh, being multifactorial, and I, I think about this sometimes even too, and I'd be curious with your thoughts on this is it's easy. I think it can even be trendy just to say, you know, neurology, like, you get like in my YouTube sidebar, it's like neurologist says this. And it's just like, you know, they appeal to that. Like, it's like the ultimate authority, you know, like that type of thing. And so I'm just like, my thought is, well, what part of this is actual neurological like software that the, the, the software is the thing. And there are exercises for that software versus something that is more psychological and requires, you know, a psychological approach, maybe like a therapist or, you, you know what I'm saying? Like somebody, something in, in that nature. So. Um, but I'm sure that's a very complex answer. I think you have to be able to test the neurological, right? And then you shore that up. Okay, this yeah. checks out or it doesn't or whatever. And then, so maybe it is something that's a different issue. I'm, I guess there's no easy answer to that, huh? I do think you have to test the neurology and improve that before you start digging in someone's head. Mm. Yeah. Um, because if you look at the order in which the nervous system developed, uh, and it's the nervous system that manages the emotional life, um, but the first task of a nervous system is to connect sensory input to motor output. Like that's its most fundamental, uh, premise. So if, if you wire that properly, now I still, I still think we all need to shrink. Honest, mm -hmm. uh, honestly, I, I mean that, but there might be a little bit less work for the shrink to do if the, the primary parts of our nervous system work better, but one doesn't exclude the other. And in the cases of pathology, like psychiatric dis disorders, you most definitely need a medical intervention, but at the same time, and I've seen this with patients that are diagnosed with different mental health conditions, they tend to do a whole lot better after they've learned how to crawl. Yeah. Um, and they'll still need the psychiatrist and they still might need the medication, but are they ever more stable in their day-to-day? -day? It's fascinating to see. So I think it's, yeah, I think we need to improve what we can improve mm -hmm. and what Jeff and I do is so simple, it's so non-invasive, it's so conducive that I'm kind of thinking, and obviously it's our bias because that's what we do, but we're thinking, geez, everyone should benefit from this. And then if they need other things, we're just going to help everyone in what they do. Like we're going to help the shrink, we're going to help the strength coach, mm. we're going to help the high school teacher. We're really going to help absolutely everyone just by doing what should have been done, which is that brain connecting properly to 600 muscles. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who's constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can use the code JOEL15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5 for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, it does, it makes me think about too, like, you know, like the mind and the body and the body and the mind there, you're not going to get one without the, like, 
And just, just from the most purely general perspective, just the impact of just physically moving your body. You go for a walk, you feel better. Kids play sports, it has a positive impact on their lives. And so there's, you know, it's it just, to me, it is intriguing to think of, you know, the multifaceted impacts of, let's say you have like a one-sidedness in your vision or something like that. You know, it's interesting to, to consider that. So maybe let's, um, I'd love to get a little bit more into like some of the main, like the primary, like 101, basic things to test. You, uh, crawling is one I think we can all uh, talk about with a pretty fair, like a lot of people, a lot of coaches listening to the show, a lot of people do things in the space of bodyweight training, crawling. You had mentioned like athletes who come up and maybe they started walking, they were rushed to start walking or something like that, or they were a bum shuffler or whatever, which I would have never cared if you had asked me this eight years ago, because my daughter is seven now, I would not have cared at all, probably. <laughs> but like, you know, then you start having kids and you watch how kids move. And even with what you were saying with the um, the one-sidedness and the le- left and right side, you know, in soccer, my five-year-old son's soccer practice, we'll do Simon Says, and I'll say, Simon Says, kick the ball with your left foot. Half of them, three quarters of them, don't even know what their left foot is. So I'm like, well, maybe that's a constraint that rules out any sort of, you know, finding out anything about this. You know, I have to go and be like, this is your left foot. But once you know what your left and right foot is, can you do it? Like it's, I think you kind of take those things for granted sometimes, but it is interesting to see how that um, paints a, a little bit bigger picture. And it also gets me thinking, and I don't want to go on a rabbit trail, and, and maybe we could actually, this may be a good question to shore up right away though, is how many people who I would imagine, and again, you guys have um, so much broader of a, t- I just see a few things and try to make connections in my head. Uh, but it would strike me that people who reach like a college level, a pro level in their sport, very likely have a lot less neurological compromises than someone who made it to, they didn't make it, they didn't make it past JV or something like that. Or do you think differently? I am curious what your take is on that. Go for it, Jeff. Man, uh, that's a loaded question. Um, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't say maybe. I don't know. I don't want to give any like certainties because it all really depends on, on the sure. person i i don't know if someone who makes it to a college level has less i, I really don't um i think they maybe just did better than w- with what they have um than some that maybe have the same things um you know and, and as, as you know especially joel with all the podcasts you've done on motor learning and and you know and play uh and uh you know like what i, I love what um rafe kelly talks about with with rough housing and all that stuff, you know, I think there's a lot more that goes into athleticism and kids that make it higher levels than, than kids that don't. But, um, I don't know, man, you know, I've seen a lot of professionals that have one-sided pains, <laughs> um, that have chronic things. I mean, when, when the, what the average lifespan of an NFL running back is what, two years, um, you know, and, and injuries is, you know, a main, main cause for a lot of that. Um, for that number, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to make that, that argument that they have less, um, you know, and again, a lot of good athletes, them, you know, you, you can correlate or fall on maybe on that ADHD side of things and kids that had more dyslexic side, which gives them gifts, you know, they struggle in certain things, but that now they have gifts. And does that mean we shouldn't work on the lower side of the, the, the brain or the, the, the pyramid side, you know, that uh, maybe didn't get developed as much, you know, to me, I think they still should because I want to help them as a person, not just as an athlete. I want to help them as an overall person. Um, 
So I don't know. That's that's hard for me to make that uh, that claim either way. I, I you know, when Dr. Malilo and Matt, you might know the numbers better, has done studies showing that what seventy to eighty percent of people still have retained primitive reflexes. You know, um, I, I think that's all something that should go into it. You know, and I know that's not necessarily being looked at with brain injuries. Some some people are, some people aren't, but I, I think that plays into it with. I think it all, like you said, with the psychiatry and 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 this psychology and and the brain stuff. I think it all ties together um, with with pros that have anxiety or, or young kids that have anxiety or learning issues and have this. I, I think it's all related. So I, I don't know, man. I think it's more. I think it's a higher number than we like to think. But I'll leave it at that, Matt. <laughs> I think that uh, athletes have probably learned <clears throat> to compensate better with maybe it's the same imbalances that others uh, didn't. Uh, I'm, I would also like to think that maybe they have less of these imbalances um, just because mathematically it would make sense. I'm, I'm not in touch with that many athletes. That's I wanted Jeff to answer that question. He runs a facility where kids train every day. I'm an osteopath. I do things that are more clinical. I do see athletes, but like I don't actually train them, so I don't have as much of that perspective. But that being said, um, if I look at France, uh, who won the World Cup in soccer a few years ago, uh, the controversy there, funny enough, was that a lot of the players that helped France win didn't grow up in France, and uh, they grew up in countries where motor development came more easily, um, less industrialized countries where essentially kids are let you know left to themselves a bit more. Now, these, these guys are allowed to represent themselves as, and, and stand up for France and, you know, wave the flag. That's, that's a matter of identity and that's fine. But, uh, it was just interesting to see that, um, you know, France won, but the players, they weren't born and raised in Paris. Uh, so does that play a role? Um, most likely, um, it, what, what we do between zero to two years old, uh, affects how we do a lot of things later on in life. And th there is some good research on that. Dr. Melillo brings it up in his courses. Quick case study. Um, I'm helping. I became friends with a gentleman who's an Olympic bobsledder that contacted me um, on social media, and uh, um, he had he tore the labrum in his hip. Olympic bo Olympic level bobsledder tore the labrum in his hip, and we did an online postural assessment with some of this stuff. And lo and behold, left eye didn't turn in. Left foot flatter than the right. You know, more sensitivity to his left foot. Um, things like that. So, and he's an Olympic caliber athlete so you know i think he just learned to compete oh and his vestibular system is off which is crazy um did not have great rombergs and which is crazy because he's a bobsledder and he's going what 100 miles an hour um but um i don't know again I i've just seen it where it's it's i i think they just do better with it personally yeah something i'd like to get into some like nuts and bolts in the back half of this show and me I, I, as i mentioned crawling is i think really fundamental um things to maybe from a reflex perspective um what to look for in crawling ways to do crawl-based work if someone let's say they became a walk maybe they were in a walker when they were a kid and they didn't get enough crawling or whatever you know maybe they didn't roll enough um things to look for and then ways to implement crawl-based activities that can help um restore some of these things go for it jeff oh geez um my uh my biased opinion is 
we'd have to start a little lower in the pyramid <laughs> than the crawling part. Sorry, sorry, I, Matt, I hope that appeases you though. Um, so we would do some tactile stuff. So Matt, I see him playing with his neuro spike ball right there. One of the first things all my clients do, adults or kids, is take off their shoes and socks and they mm-hmm. roll out their feet, they roll out their hands. So we try to get some tactile sensitivity right off the bat. Um, and I'm sure, Joel, you've done that enough because I see you, you love training barefoot. Some people just don't like doing it. Um, you know, they don't like taking off their shoes and socks. They, they have some problems with that. Um, and I'm willing to bet there's a tactile reason why why they do that. Um, we do that. And then, you know, the vestibular system's got to be developed in there um, a bit. So we, we do some kind of balance work. Um, and there's other things that, that we would go through a little bit before the crawling, but, um, you know, I want to make sure if, when we get to the point where it's crawling, that, uh, it's done symmetrical, um, that we can do it in a multitude of, uh, forward and back. Uh, you know, I teach side crawling and stuff like that, but, um, but there's things in the pyramid before crawling comes in. Hopefully Matt can attest to that. And I, I made him happy with that answer. <laughs> Crawling is very fundamental and and um, important, but uh, you know, basically, if you if you look at what happens between zero to twelve months of age, um, crawling comes and in in industrialized countries, it, you know, around seven eight months, you know, we're pretty happy if a kid starts crawling six months of age, you know, if it looks like decent crawling. Uh, in more um, in less industrialized countries, uh, kids start crawling much earlier, and and even before the crawling, just just rhythmic movements where the kid, let's say, is lying on his back and just swinging mm-hmm. his body for what seems to be no good apparent reason, uh, that actually comes before, and those are what we can call rhythmic movements, which we're quite fond of um, with the stuff that I've learned and that that I now teach. Uh, but so movement for no other reason than just to move, right? With no purpose of wanting to go from point A to point B, that's actually the the very beginning of motor learning. And just to make it freakier, that actually starts happening in utero. Mm. Um, so so when we look at movement proficiency now, I think where Jeff and I and a bunch of people we've trained are, are coming from is we say, okay, we're, we're all for assessing a squat. Like I, I do that every day, uh, Jeff even more so than I do. But then if we want to figure out why it doesn't look the way we would want, it, it's just a matter of like, where does the headspace go? And where a lot of people's headspace is going right now is they'll, they'll think about, you know, a tight hamstring or inhibited glute. And we actually agree that you'll find all these things. But at some point, I, I guess in, in, in our development, we, we started thinking, okay, so, but why? And then, and then the, the fact that people sit or stand too much wasn't satisfactory for us or, Oh, but they do too much of this sport or too much of that sport, it, it or the right-handed or the <laughs> left-handed. Like it, it essentially really has to do with how you've picked up movement as a skill, and some of those movements develop and get quite perfected even before we're born. So again, just learning about these things and having tools to uh, and testings and exercises that we can do for it um, has a huge impact on how we do very complex tasks on two feet so uh so that's the idea but yeah moving just for moving which we i don't think we have much respect for right because we're always like okay well we move for a purpose kid lies on his back at like two months of age and just wiggles his body around Mm -hmm. and that might look funny but that's actually a a really important part of them connecting with their body so that they can then be consequential when they start crawling but uh, so those are called rhythmic movements 
Um, and if people look, at, look it up online, uh, they'll find something called Rhythmic Movement Training, uh, RMT. Uh, and there's courses on that kind of stuff available all through the U.S. And it's like super accessible stuff mm -hmm. to everyone. Yeah, that's why uh, breakdancing was so good for me athletically when I was a senior in high school. Rhythmic ground-based movement. I, um, 100%. It is, it is so funny too, like you, the things you watch human beings do that they are not coached to do or not conditioned to do, you can learn so much, be it children, um, you know, kids rolling on the ground, or like you said, doing rhythmic activities. And it's like, why are they doing this? Or elite athletes, the nuances of an elite athlete, or especially an elite athlete who wasn't coached to do something, they just do it. Um, I think that's, there's a lot of power with that. I was saying, I was going to say too, I was thinking about this, Jeff, when you were talking is it's just, to me, I find this interesting is like something like foam rolling, like, you know, foam rolling comes along, people do it, it feels good, but then it's like, well, that's not actually getting out the knot in your, you know, faster or whatever. Well, no, it's not actually, but it feels good. Like, why does it feel good? Well, because it just increases the sensation, probably does some other things too, but like, it's that sensory, whatever you're doing, I mean, there's a million and one things, even, um, you know, it's just funny, the, uh, when I was at Cal, the, the uh, basketball strength coach or one of the basketball strength coaches had, this is when the Theraguns were getting popular, the little like, you know, machine gun percussion thing. And of course, as soon as I see it, before I use it, my mind instantly is like, oh, that's the stupidest thing in the world. Like, it's just another gimmick. And then I use it and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Like, that feels really good. Like, I, there's something to this that's pretty cool. And as long story short is I think I have found that I don't look at all that stuff in the same light. I don't look at it like, oh, what's the exact little physiological piece? I'm like, it gets blood flowing more likely than not, and it increases sensation and feedback. And honestly, that's like the 80% of the 80-20, I feel like, as long as you're getting those and even um like rolling like tim anderson has uh, been on the show original strength talking about just rolling on the ground like in the transverse plane uh, i remember connor harris was talking about just giving people more points of contact uh one thing that was really cool i did recently uh jeff you mentioned rafe kelly i was at um not the retreat a workshop in virginia or sorry, north carolina um back about a month ago with aaron cantor and in his warm-up i, I love this warm-up it was it was awesome we did like um like a lot of like kind of tai chi type movements like just like basically like bouncing or shaking and then a lot of like percussive like take your fists and like gently kind of you know just hit around muscles and stuff or you could like take your hands and rub your arms and your calves and your legs and all the and honestly it's crazy after i did that warm-up and then oh the other one was roll on the ground practice falling and rolling on the ground in random ways for five minutes and i did this warm-up mm -hmm. and i was like man that was like it just from the sense of usually you warm up and it's like do this exercise and sensation is like the last thing that was a warm-up that was completely like sensation was like three quarters of the whole thing but you are moving your body in all these different ways um and i just think all, long story short as I, I every year i go through this i just believe more and more that sensation is so underrated and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be i think you can be more nuanced with it for sure but i think on a very baseline level like a very base human level just something that gets the nerve receptors going and has pressure and and whatnot i think is really valuable so just doing that and then um you know leading into the next piece I, do you guys have any uh feedback on that because i was going to ask you a little bit more about the crawl piece but i'd be curious about any other feedback there because yeah the sensation something i've been thinking about an awful lot i love that stuff um you know kind of the edo portal and the, the, the evolved move play stuff I, I i love that stuff i've been incorporating more and more 
into my practice with me personally and what I do with my, my adults and athletes. I love that stuff. But, um, yeah, just giving more awareness to the, the athletes, to their body and how they can or cannot do something or, you know, uh, get proprioception, the more, the more aware of things we can get them. I think it's, I love it. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Yeah. Um, I'll just do one other question on the awareness. So feet balance and like you had the spiky ball and I find this is something interesting to me, Matt, I would love your thoughts on this is I've found, I really enjoy like Marv Marinovich sports science lab, like the PVC pipes, the discs, absolutely love that stuff. I found that compared to something like weightlifting where somebody who has never lifted before, maybe their bench press is 95 pounds when they start and they're in high school. And then, I mean, they could get up to 150 or something by the end of the year, they could improve a ton. But I find, at least in my experience, someone who's, let's say arbitrary number two out of 10 ability and balancing on the pipes, they suck, they fall off very quickly. They're not going to go, in my experience, it is very difficult to get them to an eight out of 10. Like there is these barriers that seem to be this, I mean, they might get to a four or a five and they might get a lot bit more strength and general ability, definite improvements across. I've gotten so much out of those tools, but for some reason, I do find the improvement curve is just not what it is in other things for a lot of that stuff. And I'd be curious what you guys' take on that. I, I think your starting point for balance was already way too difficult for most of the people that we see. And mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why they don't improve. So um, what I've developed with, you know, the IP method, and I had a hard time calling it a method for so many years because I thought it was almost arrogant. Oh, I teach a method. But funny enough, it always <laughs> was. And and I think that's I think that's OK to say it's a system where if you assess a human being in terms of a competency like balance, you basically get to see what they're able to do now. Uh, and it's a starting point in terms of where you want them to go. So the exercise that you're describing for me is is actually what I would call a stage three or a stage four activity. Mm. Whereas, for instance, just being able to stand with their feet touching, arms across their chest and their eyes closed, which is a basic Romberg, that would be a stage two. And them being able to lie on their back, move their knees, which would make their head move, which integrates these reflexes that jeff has been bringing up like the moral reflex or the so that's a stage one so you see if let's say they have a hard time just wiggling their body uh, when they're lying on their back that's actually where i would start to turn on the vestibular the Mm. balance system and then it's a very logical approach i Mm -hmm. mean then i would get them you know standing and then once they're really good at standing on a very stable surface and we compromise their balance with foot positioning then that concludes stage two. Then we move on to stage three. So we go from static balance to dynamic balance. So I think often enough, we start with tasks that we figure are, mm-hmm. you know, accessible because, you know, we think how come can't someone can't do that? <laughs> Whereas with the bench press, we're, we're quick to say, just, just work with the bar, right? So just work with 45. And then because the starting point is accessible, 
were quickly benching 95. And as you've mentioned, Joel, by the end of the year, especially a growing, you know, teenager and who's got more testosterone in his body daily, <laughs> naturally occurring, obviously by the end of the year, he's doing 135. But, um, but I, yeah, I think it's the starting point. I think we have to be more considerate of how messed up some people are or how little proficiency they have in specific, very primary skills. Uh, it's quite humbling, even as Jeff, as Jeff was mentioning, even with an Olympic bobsledder, to think that when he would perform static balance exercises, it was difficult. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite humbling when you look at the, um, yeah, w w when you look at where people are starting from. And for us, that's the whole thing. It's like, we figure out where you're at now, and we want to build you know, a tougher, more competent human being. So we do it step by step. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I, I will say I have it just in my still accelerated levels, I'll do like sports science lab discs, which are not too bad. I have these other ones, these big red ones that are almost impossible, but for me, I can do them easily. So then that trips my mind. Be like, Oh, why shouldn't everyone be able to do these? But I'll, I'll do them on like turf. And it's like, that's like level one, but still um, what I was going to say is for people who struggle with those foot-based progressions who are at the lower levels, um, is, is it for them, it's probably not, or almost most certainly not just a skin of the foot issue, not just an ankle issue. It is also deeply rooted in their vestibular system and like Could that's where, or, or likely or vision. So yeah. for those yeah. people who really struggle, um, would it be helpful? Like you said, like doing like just standing on the ground, not on a, something like that's imbalanced, but with your eyes closed or maybe yeah. I guess like head nods or something that would get out of vestibular challenge. So basically people who really struggle, a better place would be to spend more time with something like that instead of trying to, you know, I, I, I call it circus hacks sometimes because you can make yeah. those discs circus hacks. <laughs> sometimes if I'm bored, I'll warm up with those, but I don't really prescribe that stuff. But um, so you would say that. Yeah. Like, okay. right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Joel. Yeah, I just thought of, I literally yesterday I had a case study that ties in what, what I, I think you're asking. Um, doing a, a, an advanced Romberg with this one boy. Um, he had his right foot back, left foot forward, eyes closed. He stood there for a minute like a statue, no problem. As soon as he put his left foot behind, he was shaking and rocking and rolling, couldn't stand for more than 20 seconds. Um, so what I had him do was roll out his foot with a narrow spike ball. Um, we tested the canals and I ended up just spinning him in a chair like six times with his eyes closed. Once he got on dizzy, stood back up, left foot behind, right, closed his eyes. And he stood there for a statue for a minute. No problem. Mm. Um, but yeah, so the skin of the feet and the vestibular system, I'll, I'll correlate to that. And we, you know, that Matt can talk more with that and then how it could deal with a divergent eye on that side. And yeah. That might blah, be a little blah, bit. Blah, that yeah, might be a little bit much for uh, the time we have left. Yeah, <laughs> be a fun yeah. conversation though. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it, the, all this stuff. It's like a you know, just a tip of an iceberg conversation for you know the time we have. Um, but mm -hmm. it's it's cool to think about generalities, like because for me, like I do a lot of types of training in that. And it's like trying to find someone who is that low level. It's like yes, I have some tools to get you to where I need you to be, but. What if you could get more if you did some vision and vestibular challenges and saw that part of the system? It's not just, and I think that's just in general, we tend to, we live in a bubble until we find a new bubble. And it's like, oh, okay, well, how do I integrate this new bubble? How do I integrate this new bubble? Um, uh, just back to crawling though. So you, you mentioned sensation, Jeff. Um, you know, I think I've heard you talk about different types of crawls with like, like more side bending or almost like, you know, we talk about like lizard crawls, different types of things in relation to reflex. 
I'd be curious, uh, just quickly, as we're kind of winding down, some of the links, you know, if we do are putting more tactile, more sensory in the system, but then also working crawls in a way that might be a little bit more reflexive. Uh, any take there? I, I, I think that actually be a good question for Maddie, because, I mean, that's pretty much what he does with the IP method with his stages of, of development. So I don't, Matt, if you don't mind answering that one, buddy. I mean, in terms of just the, the order of um, choosing different exercises. Um, so first off, I mean, we need to make sure that the person feels both of their feet. Uh, so that can be, yes, we can do some tactile stimulation. But the other um, third of that story would be, let's say that in infancy, you were really good at turning your head to the right, not so much turning your head to the left. Typically, if you don't have as much rotation to the left, um, if, if let's say we just stick to that one thing, uh, mm -hmm. you, would, you would typically not be able to recruit your left foot nearly as much. Um, so, you know, the capacity to crawl then with your left foot then would have to do with, you know, how much sensory stimulation you got on the foot itself, but it can also have to do with, was your head rotation, you know, pattern pretty adequate and, and symmetrical, um, and then vision. So you had to look straight ahead. If one of your eyes was a bit lazier, as it is the case with 80% of people, typically on that side, it's harder to recruit muscles. So you can have you can have that foot that's a little bit off with crawling, which then leads to that foot being off with gait and then with running. And it could come from three different boxes, which are all st sensory stimulation. We then like to go and check each of these boxes and see how well they work. And if they don't work so well, initially, we stimulate these things in isolation. Uh, so that we can know, you know, okay, if I just stimulate the skin of the foot, what does that do? Mm -hmm. Okay, that helps. Okay, okay, we need to do that. What if I make you turn your head to the left repeatedly? Does that make you better? Oh, God, yeah, the left foot mm -hmm. is much more stable. Okay, let's add some visual. So, so basically, we have a checks and balance system for absolutely everything we do. It's one of the reasons why I think we're pretty confident presenting this to you or anyone else. It's not that we think we have the answer to everything. It's just that we do know when we have an answer for something because we're going to be checking before and after. I most definitely, in most cases, uh, check with each client, each of the three exercises I'm going to give them. I don't give more than three exercises. It won't take them more than five minutes because it needs to be manageable. They won't need a partner to do them. All they'll need is the little spiky ball. Um, they might need a, an Airx pad when they get really advanced. I personally stick to just those two pieces of equipment, mm. but then I also expect that they would do what I ask because it's it's made very accessible. So we go from simple to complex and um, no stone is left unturned as much as what we know. Uh, and again, we, we check for every intervention to see if there's a positive impact, which would be either gain in range of motion active, uh, either gain in stability, or just that we improve a pattern like a squat or, you know, running mechanics. Things just need to look more fluid, easier, and um, stronger, faster, and more powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in closing this out, too, kind of taking that from what you were just talking about, Matt, with more of the clinical edge of things. And Jeff, more in the, like, um, the sports performance athletic realm. I'm curious, Jeff, where do you kind of have buckets or, you know, like triage, like we're talking about, like testing, retesting. Do you have kind of like a triage, Jeffrey, like, okay, this person needs a lot more help from more of these neurological-based exercises versus, hey, this person's pretty good. Are you, do you have different levels where you're like not really testing anybody or clients that you're testing more regularly? Like, how does that look for you, Jeff, in, in an athletic performance setting where 
people may come in with different levels of function or need and those types of things? Um, well, I, I, my practice has kind of grown into two separate entities. So I have the sports performance realm, and then I have now kind of the neurological development realm with, with kids who have, who are labeled with something neurodivergent is one of the popular Mm -hmm. phrases now for kids who have dyslexic or ADHD or autism, whatever. So I do, that is, I do IP and some of the Malilo method, but with the athletes, to be honest with you, um, we start, we just kind of start with level one with what Matt teaches with some of the rocking movements that's in, and rolling out the feet. Um, and it takes, you know, again, we do two to three exercises every, every warm up, and it takes five minutes. Um, when I start seeing some of the, uh, the things that we mentioned before, uh, kids that struggle with knowing right from left, um, kids that struggle with proprioception and knowing how to bend their spine or, or just where their body is in space. That's when I start going into testing more of the IP stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't really have like a test day when they first come in and this is what we do. And I, I go through my checks and balances. It's more kind of like case by case. Uh, for instance, I had a 13 year old girl come in for volleyball. Dad wanted me to improve her vertical jump and her lateral movement. I noticed right off the bat that she, from a postural standpoint, had shoulders and eyes and ears that were slanted in one direction and that she could not look at me when we were talking. Mm. I'm like, all right, well, there's some bigger things going on than just improving vertical jump and lateral movement. So that's mm-hmm. where I started right at the bottom and gave her homework with, with all that stuff. And then we started seeing improvements in flexibility improvements in just cognitive ability to remember things, um, and deal with stress. Uh, cause she would get stressed out with these tryouts for volleyball clubs and stuff like that. And she would report and her parent would parents would report back that she was able to take it off better than she used to in the past. Um, you know, um, whether difficult, but, um, uh, sorry to tie it back to answer your question. I don't fully, I test when I feel I need it. Um, I have a really high level, uh, track runner right now that we're struggling with her acceleration, particularly with her retraction and where her foot lands and this and that. And I, I just, I don't know. It, it just, she strikes me as someone that does maybe have some proprioceptive issues. So we went to level one and started doing some of the level one stuff with ip and yeah she struggled yeah <laughs> she struggled with everything on the, on the lower half she struggled with the sensitivity of your feet she struggled being able to rock and coordinate her body she struggled knowing what her feet are in relation to her lower legs and stuff like that so boom we start doing that she improves really fast because she's a, a really high level athlete very very uh, springy nervous system and boom all of a sudden her mechanics and everything and her sprinting starts going better now i can't just say a equals yeah. b but i know i believe that that has something to do with it yeah um, so I'm going to just ask you as a combo question to, I know we got to get out of here <laughs> times running out, but, um, one just, uh, you know, what I mentioned, it's almost like we have the layers, right? Like base layers could be the easiest thing. You know, if we're li- people are listening to this, wh- what's the thing I can get out of this? Well, sensation. And you mentioned rocking like base, total base layers. And then as you learn more, you find more situations you need to learn more. Um, maybe you, you guys just briefly tell me about like the rocking piece, uh, and then where they can learn more. So I know you, you have, there's an IP course. Um, so if you guys want to, uh, talk about that real quick and then we can uh, get out of here for the day. Uh, Jeff? <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I mean, I'm sorry, I learned IP during COVID because Dan Fichter told me to take this course from this really smart guy. Um, and that kind of blew my mind and opened my, opened my world to just some different stuff. 
Um, and then when Matt, Matt does a great job of citing where he learns information from. So that's, I think, a lost art to a lot of uh, people out there. They don't tend to cite where they gained their knowledge and stuff. And so just my, how I learn, I started tracking those people uh, from Dr. Melillo to um, um, the rhythmic movements uh, courses. I started taking those um, and that started ex- just exploding uh, in, in really opening up the, the rabbit holes more to things in, in my practice and what I do. So I would first implore, and, and I, I would say this, not just because Matt's on this call, but IP, IP is, uh, you have to have an open mind, you know, and I know that's hard for some, 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 some people because it is different and you're gonna be like, why the hell am I doing this rocking? Why am I doing this, this weird shit? Cause I know I was one of them and I had those thoughts when I first started doing it. But then when you start learning the why, and Matt does a great job of really detailing the neuroscience, um, it makes a shit ton of sense. So uh, I would I would implore everyone to, to, to look into that first. And thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. And um, I, I really do like saying where I've learned stuff from, because what I really enjoy is people learning more and having discussions with these people. And quite frankly, what I enjoy the most out of traveling to teach is meeting people that come from different places. They've taken different courses. There's contents courses that exist in Europe that don't exist in America. And the opposite is also true. So just learning from these people, what they've been influenced by. Um, and I try to, I try to bring that into one package where again, as Jeff says, I'll always tell you where I've learned even a single exercise, <laughs> you know, if it's not mine, I'll tell you, this comes from Paul Czech or this comes from, I mean, uh, and then it's, it's depending on people's interests, you know, to dig where, uh, they want to dig. But uh, if you're interested in stuff that I teach, uh, the website is expertise. So that's X and then P E R T I S E 360.com. Um, that's the promotional company that Dan and I work with for Canada and the U S. So everything's on that website in terms of the stuff that we teach that, uh, that Jeff took everything I've been teaching. So I thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that from you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys. Um, just last 30 seconds, rocking different than crawling, just rocking like bear rocking back and forth or. 30 second definition. <laughs> can I, can I send them some videos, Matt? Is that cool? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's going to okay, be, okay. Yeah, so maybe you can post it to your show describe. notes, Joel and stuff like that. Yeah, Is that uh, cool? Yeah. I'll it's, hard, it's hard to describe, but I can send, oh, I'll yeah. send you some videos that, that, that show it. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. They'll be on the show notes on just fly sports. So everyone listening head on there to check it out. So anyways, thank you guys. I know we got to get off the call here. So we'll, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much guys. Thank you, Jeff. Later, boys. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.